Welcome back. I'm Kim Bailey, she's Fuliana Osborne, and this is Inside Exec. Today we're talking with Nick Plummer, and I'm going to let Fuliana introduce him. Welcome, Nick. Fuliana. I'm delighted you're here because a lot of people already know you and expecting you after you agreed to be a guest. Nick Plummer is one of the founding members of Directioneering. Directioneering being instrumental in helping so many businesses and individuals within the businesses to find their next career move. Nick, you've been in this business for how long now? Well, Directioneering has been going about 12 years. 12 years. And I've been doing this work for about 25 now. Excellent. And you actually worked for big organisations before you set up your own business, didn't you? Yes, I started this with Price Waterhouse. Mm-hmm. Worked with a lovely lady called Audrey Page at Price Waterhouse for four years. There you go. Uh, I worked for Morgan and Banks for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and then worked with a very large uh, career transition firm, which was called originally Davidson and Axsmith, which was bought by a big American firm, Right Management, and I worked for them for. A, about eight years and then we started directioning. Excellent. So in that time you've obviously seen a change in human resources management generally. Has there been a change in the way you approach outplacement? Not probably the way we approach outplacement. I think outplacement is changing definitely. Mm -hmm. For example in the US it's often delivered much more by technology. In this country that hasn't happened quite as much. Do you think it will? Uh, Yeah, I think it will, but um, maybe Australians are a bit different to Americans as well. I think they'll they'll want to retain a lot of the one-on-one, hands-on stuff that you get in outplacement here. But it's obviously a hell of a lot cheaper to do it technologically, and that's always going to be a driver. So, yeah, I think that'll happen more. Which is fascinating because we, as a country, we are probably one of the early adopters of technology. Yes, that's Across true. the board. Yes, and actually we're one of the early adopters of outplacement mm-hmm. as well. I think the Cana- we came from the States originally. I think Canada was the next to adopt it. And I think Australia was pretty close after Canada, so we are early adopters definitely. So what's the biggest issue for you when you first go to an organisation or they first engage you? In terms of how we engage our clients? Yep. Well, you see, our service is a bit different. I think if you ask a client to describe an outplacement firm and what's different about that outplacement firm, they'll often find it difficult to do because they don't really fully understand what, what we you do. do. So I think what our business is much more about is about trust. So it takes quite a long while for a client to really get to know you and to trust you. I wouldn't say that we're particularly high sales people. Some might disagree with me about that, but a client has to get to know us quite a bit before it will really engage with us. And and that probably then reinforces the fact that it needs to remain as a human interaction rather than a technology one. Because if you're asking people to trust you, there's more trust placed in a, a human interaction than there is in a, in a technology interaction. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Kim. And also, we tend to operate at the more senior level, mm. and therefore that's going to not be delivered by technology, although that's no. going to be more hands-on. Yeah. Do you find there's more resistance to your services at that level? Do you, do you hit a barrier? I'll go back and say I've been in the position of using outplacement services, yeah. um, both as a, a person requiring that and as an organi- a representative of an organisation. And from my experience, the middle level of management, there was huge resistance to even talking to anyone about yeah. that particular service. And a lot of people just walked away and said, I don't want it because we gave them the option. But at the next level up, at the senior level, it was, yes, I understand that this is a resource, 
that I need to use and so I will use that resource rather than have to try and find a solution myself. Is that Do you find that's the reaction? Well, I think that, that that's probably changed quite a bit because mm-hmm. it's become more and more people have got laid off. Almost everybody gets laid off sooner or later now. And so a lot of people are used to going through that process, sadly, mm. and therefore they've ran into, run into our placement firms more and more. Yeah, so, so, see, I don't think it's sadly. I think it gives them an opportunity to reassess to their careers that yes. they don't get in any other way. You know, where else in an organisation do you have the opportunity to stop and think about what you're doing and where you're going? Yes, no, you're exactly you right. You don't. That you're exactly mm. right, although it can be painful at the time. Mm. You know? mm. But I tell you, but to your question about the resistance, The place that I find the resistance the most is at the managing director level. It used to be that almost no managing director wanted to use outplacement. They looked upon it as something they bought for other people, but not something they did themselves. That's changing now. Many managing directors realise that you know they need some help working out what they might do and finding it as other people do. Mm-hmm. But there's still some resistance in that space because they feel their network is very, very good and that they perhaps don't need the service. Yeah. But other than that, not much resistance at all nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know. To that point, do you think a, a bit of that resistance could be that I don't want to be seen as I don't know what to do yeah, because yes. I should, because I'm a managing director? Exactly. Yeah. The same resistance you used to get, Fuliana, to coaching years ago. That yes. People used to think that if I'm being given coaching, it's because I'm a failure, whereas right. now people put their hands up and say they want coaches. So, you know, so yes, there's that change, you know. So if we take a step back and say that we'll put the outplacement to one side, when is the best time for people to look at their careers and assess whether it's time to make a change before change gets forced upon them? Well, of course, changing your career is quite a significant mm. thing. You know, it used to be that you only had one career, like my father only had one career, but now my generation has on average about three careers and the next generations down the track, they'll have more careers again. Mm. So it's be- going to become more and more important so I think the signs that it's time to change your career is usually it's a crisis that causes somebody to change a career. That's why we help many people change careers. But that crisis has come because perhaps the person was doing something that either there's becoming less and less demand for, which I guess it's definitely time to change, or that they've moved to a different you know, part of their life where they're not so appropriate doing that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, also um, because there's something else that they want to do in this world. You know, mm. usually that's own business or something mm. like that. Mm. So, there's, so it's either the demand for, for that career thing is not there anymore or it's just a time in the cycle of your life that's time to move on doing something, something different. Mm. You know? But I think the big question that everybody all, always ought to be or perhaps there's two questions that you always should be asking yourself in a career. One is, is the demand for this thing still there and are my skills up to date? And the other thing is, am I still enjoying this and is this something I still want to carry on doing? Mm. You know? And if the answer is no to either of those things, well, it's time to change. Or think about change. 
I'll think about it. (laughs) (laughs) And so we look at the individual who's come to that point. They've asked the questions, they've answered it, and they need some help. Is it appropriate then for them to come to a service like this, or do they look elsewhere for help? There's, you know, all sorts of places you can turn to for help at that time. Most outplacement firms are not retail-driven. In other words, an individual often can't buy the service from them, only a company can buy it for them. Actually, we will do it both ways. We will, an organisation can brief us or, or an individual can, but it's definitely worthwhile turning to somebody in that situation who can try and give you a very good idea of your own makeup and where you're in in the marketplace, has an understanding of the marketplace who understands what the opportunities and possibilities in, and has some sort of process that can help you, you know, really think those things through and look at the possibilities. So then you're looking at a mentor or a coach? Yeah, a mentor or a coach or a, or a career transition consultant, all of these people. And so, so then we have our big question that we ask, is what is the what do you see as the difference between mentoring and coaching? Well, I, I think a coach is somebody who adds value to what you're trying to do by looking at how you do it and help and strengthen you up. A mentor is somebody who's already done that particular thing and so it's looking at the specifics of what you do and you know, helping you do it in that way. So they overlap, but they're slightly different. Okay. I don't know, what do you think? Well, I'm, I'm going to let Fuliana talk, because otherwise we'll be in trouble, because <laughs> she hasn't said anything for you know, five minutes, and this is almost a record. Speak. I think there's so many different schools of thought about the difference between mentoring and coaching. The mentoring is sharing one's own experience, is not actually telling the mentee what to do and forcing them in a certain way. It is just somebody to think aloud with, someone who would have life experience, corporate experience, that can share examples to let the individual mentee come to their own decisions. And if they made a decision and it didn't go the way they they hoped it went, is how to recover from there and, and move on. A coach is does a bit of that but also more specific like will always help with things like how do I write the best business plan how do I go about uh, leading a team of professionals who used to be peers and stuff like that that's a lot more instructive and there is blurred lines between the two so you do what you need to do for the person at the time basically on the career starting about career and the next career move I know that a lot of people me included you're driven by what opportunities they may come up yeah. and you're also driven by am I happy in this company am I still growing uh, am I getting enough money etc etc yeah. I came across one of the individuals who went through those graduate programs and very 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 focused young man and after he finished and he was doing really really well he says I now should look at a career move and I was a bit surprised <laughs> and I was saying why is that and he says because I'm right on top of the tree and that's when I'm most smart and I oh, thought, that's interesting, because yeah. yeah. most people look at, am I bored, am I not growing? And this guy's saying, I'm right up top. Now, I want because I can create more opportunity. Yeah. And what's your thoughts about that? Well, I think that's an unusual approach. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In as much as I 
would have thought it's like a sort of maturity thing, like a yeah. you know product curve, and it's usually on the mm -hmm. back end of the curve that somebody will make a career change. Mm -hmm. But what he's doing is changing on the top of the curve. So yes. I guess you could do that. Yeah, um, he has been very successful. Well, there you go. <laughs> but I think most people would do it a bit later yeah. than that. You know, but yeah. you can do it either way, I suppose. Do you see a trend when people change careers? I, I agree with you about the three times in your life. But yeah. what I have seen is that it's three complete changes, three totally different areas that people yeah. work in. Do you see that? Well, I do with myself mm -hmm. because I started off as a marketer. So I was a food, I was a marketer in the food industry and I worked all around the world doing that. And then I worked for other people running career transition businesses or I started learning how to do that and then I ran a couple of other businesses. And then I started my own business. So mm. for me, yeah, it's been three very clear changes. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I think some people have that completely three separate careers. Other people, it's a, they're a little bit closer together. It's a bit blurred, but yeah. they, you know. And some people, of course, don't have the three changes. They'll have less or more. I wonder if it's if the acceptance of the change that's brought upon them when it, when it is a crisis change is easier to accept if you make that complete change. Yeah, I think it's you know it, it is interesting. I mean we. You hear companies like mine try and persuade you that you, you must spot the time to change career and we have all the tools to help you do it. And that is true, but absolutely normally it's a crisis that causes it. It's usually losing a job, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. something like that. Or sometimes it's, I saw a lovely example of where somebody had done that, that this had been a very successful lawyer. Um, and he was working in Hong Kong by this time um, and he had a major crisis in his life. He had a bunch of guys that he used to play rugby with and they went off to Bali and they were a lot of them were killed in the Bali bombing oh. and that had a dramatic change mm. on him mm. and he started a charitable organisation up. Mm. Um, so, you know, it... There's a number of different things that will cause the change. And just provide you with the impetus to pursue something that might have been sitting at the back of your mind and you didn't think that it was appropriate to do or the right time to do. That would probably be me. It's in demand. I forgot to turn it off thinking that it was almost flat. I wouldn't turn mine off either. I should do that too. Yeah, I've got, I've... You need to get it? No, do not. Did I not tell her an hour ago? Yeah. I'm recording today. <laughs> I'm um, just as an aside. I'm um, part of a, a bid for Australia to host the World Championships in flower arranging, and oh, the votes right. have to be in by Friday. And this is the Australian yeah. president saying, "Have you heard anything? Have you heard anything <laughs> from the other states?" And and I haven't as yet. <laughs> it's only held every three years. So it was Dublin last year. It's Barbados in 2017, oh, okay. India in 2020, and then we would like to be for 2023. So back to the topic. Somebody might be listening to this and. They haven't been through um, a redundancy situation. Yeah. Talking about senior executives, which you deal with regularly, yeah. talk us through, in general, what emotions these yeah. individuals go through and what roughly is the process and yeah. where do they end up, I guess. Yeah. So, so you know, losing a job is mm -hmm. a very emotional mm. thing. Actually, I think it's less emotional nowadays than perhaps it used to be because there's less stigma attached to losing jobs. But nevertheless, it's still a really emotional thing. Mm -hmm. And I think the more significant the job was in your life, the more emotional it is too. Right. So usually they will go through the normal grieving process, you know. Mm -hmm. So at first, they, when they first hear the news that they've lost the job, they go into shock. 
Um, and that's something that we have to, at the time that we usually meet the exec that's lost their job, they have gone into some sort of uh, shock. So you, often they're not thinking through things completely mm -hmm. rationally and they're you know, a bit of immobile sort of thing. And then they'll usually go through anger mm -hmm. um, and usually they can be very angry about the job loss and that's just a perfectly normal reaction. The one that we have to watch out for very, very carefully is depression. People can get depressed after losing a job and that's, you know, as I say, that's something we have to watch out for very, very carefully. And then people will normally start to appraise the situation more and feel yeah. out the possibilities and they'll understand that this is not an unusual thing that's happened and that it happens to you know, lots of other people mm -hmm. and usually they'll move gently towards acceptance of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So it's quite an emotional roller coaster for them and it just depends on the individual how long that process is going to take and how extreme it is for them. You know? And actually this sounds bizarre but the worst thing that can happen in my opinion through that process, well there's two really bad things. One is that there's something else going on in their life that's not good at the moment too. If they've got money problems or sickness in the family or somebody has died or some mm -hmm. terrible thing like that, that can make it even worse for them. Strangely enough, the other thing is sometimes the organisation to try and be kind to the individual keeps them there for a period of time even though they know they've gone. Yes. And strangely enough that's often not a good thing to do and that extends yes. the grieving cycle as well. So you know it's, uh, it's something we have to keep a very wary eye. What about the situation where they go into something too quickly? They, they go from knowing that that grieving process for one part of their life isn't allowed to run its course, that they get replaced somewhere else very yeah. quickly in the process and so yeah. there isn't closure of that first one. Do you yeah. see that happen? Yeah, that's a little bit like the person who gets divorced and gets remarried too fast mm. as well. <laughs> um, can be alright and maybe they'll get through it but can resurface as well and they go through it all over again. And the worst thing that they could do is, you know, in the case of another job, move on to another job but their confidence has been mm. somewhat shattered, you know, because it just makes it more difficult for them to do the next job. If yeah. we're talking senior executives here, would they not have an inkling that this was going to happen? Yeah, often they do, mm. and it's not a bad thing if they do, uh, because... But you don't see denial in that process, that they, yes, they think it's, that won't denial. affect them? <laughs> no, I didn't mention there's, denial in the grieving they're process. They're special. It's, yes, it's very much there, mm. and there's always denial, of course. We've made redundant myself, yes. I know all about yes. denial. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's definitely there. There's just so much for us to cover with you, Nick, that we're going to take a break now, and we'll come back for part two of our discussion with Nick Plummer on career transitions. I'm Kim Bailey, she's Fuliana Osborne, we're with Nick Plummer and this is Inside Exec.